one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Heidi Klum and Tim Gunn are back to launch the next global fashion brand in Making the Cut. In this new original series from Amazon, 12 designers from around the world compete for the opportunity to take their brand to the next level. New episodes available every Friday. Watch Making the Cut, only on Prime Video. This lockdown has made me, uh, upper middle class Indian, realize my own privilege. There's another wave to come. And that wave is going to come in countries which are not nearly as prepared as China or Italy. In the next two weeks, we are literally waiting for a catastrophic situation. But what is worse in India is the food crisis. It's time for the world, it's time for India to turn its attention to these people who have been running our businesses over the years and it's time to lend a helping hand to them. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF podcast. In our latest special edition covering the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on the global fashion industry, we go to India, where the noted journalist Rana Ayub 
speaks to me about social distancing. And in countries like India, Bangladesh, Cambodia, and elsewhere, social distancing is a privilege. Rana describes the current situation in India, how the government is responding to the coronavirus pandemic, and the implications for millions of garment workers, artisans, and embroiderers who serve the global fashion industry. This is a special episode. Don't miss it. Here's Rana Ayub, Inside Fashion. Hello, Rana. How are you? I'm doing well. So far, so good. I mean, how can one be in a in in a lockdown? Well, I'm surviving. Yeah, exactly. Are you? You're in Bombay, is that right? I'm in Bombay. I'm in Bombay. Yes, with my family all under the same roof, uh, living together. Yeah. What's the mood like right now in India? Uh, the mood is pretty grim because the number of positive cases, especially uh, uh, in the last five days, has kind of gone up like by about 100%. So we have about 2,000 cases in Bombay. Of course, we have another 300 cases. So we are where the United States was two weeks ago and Italy was about four weeks ago. So um, the the next couple of weeks will be very crucial for us. and. Especially people in Bombay are not used to, I mean, this is perhaps a historical lockdown for us. And we're not used to this kind of just staying at home, staying indoors. And um, so it's, it's pretty grim out here. Um, you know, it's just everybody just 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 wanting to step out of their home. But again, we are the privileged, privileged people. The underprivileged in the country is just about a 60% population. And if you've been seeing the visuals on television, says they're all marching towards their hometown, walking in the harsh sun um, and these are people who do not have the luxury of social distancing so um, in India the pandemic is more uh, def- it's defined by uh, you know the structural divide that you see so explicitly in the country between the rich and the poor so that's what you see in India right now Imran yeah no I've been I've been seeing those images and and I want to spend some time later in the conversation kind of understanding how things have ended up the way they are in India, um, especially because, you know, there's millions of garment workers and yeah. artisans in India who serve the global fashion industry. But before we go there, I thought it was important to introduce you to our community. You know, we have a global community of listeners who tune into this podcast regularly, and mm-hmm. they are globally minded people interested in what's going on in the world. And it was important to me that we spoke to someone in India as we are continuing this series of special editions of the BOF podcast to discuss the coronavirus pandemic. So first, can you tell us a little bit about you, Rana, and, and, and what you do? I've been following your work uh, for a while now, and I was you know, taken with uh, the piece in The New Yorker by Dexter Filkins, which was published, I think, in, in December. Um, and also also been reading some of the other things that you've been writing. But just for the benefit of our community, could you just briefly right. introduce yourself? So um, I'm a journalist. I've been I've been a journalist in India working, um, working on news reports and investigation in South Asia for the last 15 odd years. Um, I've, I've worked with multiple news channels in the country. I was the editor of the Helka, which was one of India's leading news and investigative uh, magazines. So 
what you saw in the New Yorker uh, profile, which was the cover story of the New Yorker in December, was a profile of my life uh, and my reportage covering India, going undercover at the age of 26 uh, with eight cameras on my body, pulling off one of the biggest sting operations in the history of journalism on our current prime minister and his role in the extrajudicial murder of Muslims back then. Um, at present, though, I'm also um, at present, I'm the global opinions writer at The Washington Post. I also write for Time magazine um, and other publications. I, I, I write mostly on um, on social issues and the political issues uh, on communalism. And more recently, I've been I mean, I've been in the news for my coverage of Kashmir, uh, especially in the uh, in the lockdown in Kashmir, where millions of people were put under siege by the government of India. And, you know, so that's the kind of stuff that I write about, humanitarian issues, issues that are generally, you know, swept under the carpet and stuff that needs to be spoken about and something that the world needs to hear more often and for which I'm widely criticized. Uh, according to Time magazine, I'm one of the 10 most threatened journalists in the world. I'm not sure how does that, how does that feel, but uh, yeah, that's where I am, Imran. Yeah, well... Your work is really um, important. And I wondered before uh, we, we talk about the current situation in India, if you could just set the landscape um, for what's been going on in India over the past few months. I mean, it's been already, you know, pre-coronavirus pandemic, it's been a very intense period of yeah. division, a secular country that's being divided. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on and just bring people up to speed on yeah. the NRC and the CAA and some of the other actions the government's been taking in Kashmir and elsewhere? So for the benefit of your of your listeners, Imran, I must I must surprise them that our current Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who is one of the most influential leaders globally, um, so he was the chief minister of Gujarat in 2002 when a thousand Muslims were massacred and he was, um, you know, uh, the U.S. government refused him a visa to travel to the United States because of his role in this, in the carnage of a thousand Muslims. And then when he was elected in a very controversial election in 2014, one thought that uh, as, as a leader of an inclusive India of 1.3 billion people, he would leave aside his majoritarian politics. But from the period of 2014 to 2019, India saw some of its some of the worst sectarian violence. Indian democracy um, is regressing in a way. I mean, it's the world's largest democracy. So first, the Prime Minister of India revokes a special status to Kashmir and uh, puts Kashmir in a state of curfew against its will, uh, detains thousands of its children, and um, it, it is a human rights violation of of four million people. Um, there is no internet in Kashmir yet. Just now, uh, the government, after the pandemic, the government uh, started low-speed internet in the valley, which means doctors in Kashmir still cannot access um, basic information regarding the pandemic. So Kashmir was is has been treated, has been has been given a step motherly treatment, and there is a historical narrative there. Um, right after that, the Prime Minister of India introduced the Citizenship Amendment Bill and the National Register of Citizens, which by its very nature is discriminatory because the Citizenship Amendment Bill uh, allows um, citizenship to every persecuted minority from Asia, 
except for Muslims. Now that goes against the very basics of the Indian constitution that does not allow for discrimination. In opposition to this, the country broke out in protests. So there were protests across the streets. We had the legendary Shaheen Bagh protest where Muslim women have been camping for the last three months for their fundamental rights, um, you know, where they have been discriminated against by the Modi government. One of the reasons why India was unable, uh, was actually could not really act on time with this global pandemic is because since the last one month, we have been witnessing one of the worst anti-Muslim carnages in New Delhi, where 53 people lost their lives. And this happened after a union minister and Mr. Modi's government made the most provocative statement against Muslims. And, and the next day, while Donald Trump was in India, was dining with Narendra Modi in Delhi, mobs rampaged and uh, Muslim households uh, Muslim households were vandalized, people were killed, elderly women were, um, were burnt in their houses. Um, all of this while, while India was hosting the top of the American leadership. And till today, the prime minister of this country and the home minister of this country are yet to visit those families who, whose family members were burnt alive. And then comes this virus in the country. Uh, which nobody was ready for. So that's where we are, Imran, where anti-Muslim sentiments are, you know, are being whipped every day, even while we are facing this pandemic, which threatens the existence of the lower middle class and the underprivileged sections of, of the Indian citizenry. Yeah, I mean, I've been, I was in India when the protests uh, around the NRC uh, first erupted and, yeah. you know, was, um, was really moved by the way, uh, you know, people in India took to the streets. Um, some people listening to the podcast might be wondering, well, what the heck does any of this have to do with the fashion industry? Well, one of the things that I'd like to, to discuss is that actually, you know, in India, there are millions of people who work in the fashion industry. These are people who toil in the background. They're not necessarily as visible as the retail workers around the world who've also lost their jobs. But there are millions of garment workers in factories that supply many of the big global Western brands. And there are also very high-end artisans, um, people whose families have for generations created the most incredible embroideries and embellishments and designs that are you know, serving brands like Dior and Valentino and many others. And, and often many of these artisans are Muslims. And so as we think about you know, how all of this stuff that's happening in India intersects with the fashion industry, what I'd like to talk a little bit more about is there was an article you wrote, wrote recently for Foreign Policy magazine where that's you right. talked about how social distancing is a privilege. That's right. And you know, I think, you know, for those of us in the privileged classes in the West um, or even in the upper elite groups in, in developing countries like India who have the financial means and the space and the luxury of being able to isolate ourselves from the virus, this is very much not the case for people who are working in, in factories, who are the karigars, who are embroidering 
you know, beautiful garments for, for Western brands, they have all been hugely impacted by this situation because many of the factory's orders have been canceled. Um, the factories that don't have the means or ability or will to kind of keep these people under their employ have had to let these workers go. And due to the lockdown that was Im- imposed by uh, Prime Minister Modi at very short notice, I believe it was only four hours notice. That's right. All of these people are fleeing and trying to go back to their villages. And these are the shocking pictures we've come to see out of India over the past few days of people flocking to, to train stations and bus stations trying to get home so they can survive. Can you, yeah. can you talk to us a little bit about how this has happened and, you know, maybe paint a bit of a more detailed picture for us about what this means for people on a day-to-day basis? Absolutely, Imran. Uh, I think this lockdown has made me, uh, upper middle class Indian, realize my own privilege. I remember on the 24th of March, at, at around exactly at 8 p.m., when the when Prime Minister Modi announced the lockdown, me and my brother, we, we literally ran to the supermarket and I saw people, uh, you know, stocking their you know the baskets with mango puree and and sanitizers and avocados and 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 stuff that they require and and sourdough bread and everything else and we come back home and we're like oh we are sorted for the next couple of weeks and the next very next day you see images of daily wage workers marching i mean marching in thousands and marching about thousand to two thousand kilometers from the national capital to their hometown bare feet um without water without food with children on their back 22 people lost their lives in a span of two days just marching uh to their respective hometowns i went to dharavi which is also where a lot of uh you know leather factories are based uh, in mumbai and so dharavi is asia's largest slum um where you have a lot of karigars and a lot of uh, you know people who work in in the textile industry um so there are about 1 million people in 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 approximately 1 square mile of a space so i went to the ravi with all my you know wearing my n95 mask and wearing my gloves and you know taking my hand sanitizer and the moment i entered one of the slums i was ashamed because i wanted to talk to them about social distancing now how do you talk social distancing to people who, who about were about eight people in one room with no water, with no sanitation, with no soap. Um, they earn about two to three dollars in a day. Um, they do not know in a state of lockdown. I remember when I went to their place, the guy showed me just a, just a bowl full of rice. And he said, I want you to tell me how do I survive with this bowl of rice? When I have when when I go out, the police beats me saying it's a curfew, so I have to stay indoors. And when I stay indoors, my children are crying. So what am I supposed to do? So you, I I wanted to ask him about about social distancing, and I felt it was so obscene, and I felt embarrassed at asking something like this because here I am, a privileged person, with canned fruits in my bag just in case you know I felt dehydrated. And here there are people, I mean, that this particular person who I visited, Maruf, uh, he had five children. His wife has lost both her kidneys. She is on dialysis. And the hospitals are not taking her for treatment because they are, they are prioritizing COVID patients. And when he, when he just broke down and 
I couldn't take it. And, and then families after families who I was visiting in Dharavi, the privilege just, just stared at me in the face. And that's about 60% of India's population and which and India's population is about 1.3 billion. So at this point of time, you have millions of people right now without a meal. And we are only talking about urban India. We, we are not even talking about the penetration of this virus in rural India, where I think more people could possibly die due to starvation than virus. And what the world needs to understand is, yes, we have a global pandemic staring at us. We have 2,500 positive cases so far. And in the next two weeks, we are literally waiting for a catastrophic situation. But what is worse in India is the food crisis is the fact that there is no plan in place when the prime minister announces a lockdown. He had no plan in place whatsoever for the poor and the underprivileged in this country. So much so, and I don't know if you saw the visuals, that you know the prime minister airlifted Indians who were stranded in various countries, but the farmers and the laborers who were traveling from one city to the other they were uh, the local officials sprayed bleach on them and disinfectants on them as if they were some kind of germs and termites. And this was done in front of television cameras. Uh, so the structural division literally stares at you right now in India. And you rightly pointed out these are the people, whether in India or in Bangladesh, where there are thousands of migrants. Uh, these are the people who, who do the work for some of the biggest brands in the world. And these are the people right now who are at the receiving end of the pandemic as we talk. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts. Specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, Swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. 
Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Yeah, I mean, it's devastating because... I mean, of course, there is a catastrophic impact that this virus is happening, you know, in countries all around the world. But the extra layer of human catastrophe in India and the kind of ripple effect that this is going to have on people there, there are no government safety nets. There is no public health system. You know, the food shortages, all of these kinds of things are going to make this um, this pandemic uh an even more catastrophic event in countries like India. And it was so important to me that we told this story on BOF because we need people around the world to understand that, you know, this, this virus, which began in China in, in January and has slowly crept into Europe and North America, where it's now surging, there's another wave to come. And that wave that's going to come is going to come in countries which are not nearly as prepared as China or Italy or the United States, and even those countries, the richest countries in the world, you know, are seeing tens of thousands of people die. And so, you know, can you talk a little bit more about the government response in India? Because from what I've been reading, you know, the testing rate is low, you know, the the actual preparation for the virus is, 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 you know, minuscule. Yeah, I mean, as of today, Imran, we have tested close to 30,000, 30,000 people. Now, imagine a testing rate of 30,000 people in a country of 1.3 billion. We have not even scratched the surface. So the Indian government officials were talking about India being a mystery case, India being a miracle, and how the Indian government has managed to nip, the, nip this virus in the bud. I think this I think this grandstanding, uh, you know, has no basis in reality because India is not testing enough. If only 30,000 people have been tested in 1.3 billion people and 30,000 are still living in the urban cities of Mumbai, Delhi and Bangalore. The World Health Organization uh, mandates that developing countries like India uh, need to have one doctor for every thousand patients, uh, every thousand people. India has one doctor for 10,000 people. Now, that's a huge, huge, huge low uh, where India's uh, you know, public health reforms are concerned. The prime minister of the country has now announced a lockdown and he has, uh, uh, you know, and we are, we are raising billions of rupees. Uh, but why was India not prepared before pandemics had to um, you know, strike India because here is a country where people suffer, where a maximum pop of the population suffer from hypertension. Uh, but the largest population of diabetics is in India. 
we have a population that suffers from tuberculosis we are still struggling with tuberculosis and other respiratory diseases and then you have something like covid which which attacks the respiratory system so for indians to to understand whether they have been struck by a respiratory disease or whether they have been struck by a corona virus uh, will be very difficult because we do not have the testing kits we do not have the mandated testing kits we are not testing people the only people who are being tested uh, multiple times are the rich who are coming from foreign countries who have the you know who have the luxury of getting themselves tested um the government does not have free kits for the poor yet um at this point of time let's let's talk about bombay which is the financial capital of the country we have just about 400 ventilators in the government hospital now 400 ventilators for a population of 100 million people when we already have 50 deaths now the government is absolutely ill equipped uh and what and and the government needs to be called out at a at a time like this because here is a government um that has been raising billions of rupees to build the tallest statues in india so uh, last year in gujarat the prime minister of the country um, you know built the tallest statue of sardar patel which cost a billion rupees because he wanted to build a, build a taller statue than the statue of liberty in america in uttar pradesh where you have all the the, the india's uh, some of most valued craftsmen um the chief minister of uttar pradesh has dedicated 4 billion rupees for the construction of ram temple at the same time in the city thousands of children are dying due to encephalitis and there are no oxygen cylinders uh in the hospitals so india's priorities have been misplaced a lot of money has been gone in 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 kind of stoking the majoritarian agenda uh the indian government has been ramping up to build the biggest ram mandir for which the order was given by the supreme court of india after you know the spot on which the babri masjid the, the the mosque built by the moguls was demolished now indians are busy preparing for building the tallest and the most magnificent a magnificent ram temple in ayodhya just to kind of create a religious schism uh to kind of tell the muslim minorities that they are second class citizens and they're only we will be building some of the most majestic temples i wish the indian government had spent those resources in public health care because right at this point of time when we have been hit by the pandemic our doctors and our healthcare workers are are refusing to work in hospitals because they do not have the protective gear and you do not expect and they and our healthcare workers are sitting ducks as we talk seven doctors have tested positive in government hospitals because they do not have the protective gear and indians are in the indian government is now asking help from the qatar government and from the uae government my question to them is simple when you had the resources why were the resources being squandered on building the tallest monuments as opposed to the people of this country a country which has 60% of its population living below the poverty line cannot afford to squander so much money on 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 this on this you know obnoxious display of nationalism you know uh, that's that's what's happening so i think it's it's this is now if, if the indian government was to introspect then it's too late to introspect we are in a mess india is in a mess and and privileged people like us the upper middle class and the rich will never be in a mess because they will always manage to get themselves testing kits and get themselves tested but 
for the daily wage worker who is who lives a hand to mouth existence the testing kit is also a privilege which he will have to fight for so the next two weeks which i have been repeating for the last you know for the last one month india is going to face a huge crisis in the coming month and that is going to have huge a huge impact on its economy which has already been struggling in the last two years so that's where we are imran yeah i mean it seems like the coronavirus pandemic has really brought to the surface all sorts of structural divisions class divisions socioeconomic divisions and religious divisions that have yes. been stoked by this government and and i just wonder you know going back to the the kind of beginning part of our conversation you know there was a quite a bit of resistance against prime minister modi in recent months you know globally his reputation had fallen you know international publications uh from the new york times to the guardian to time magazine to the new yorker all of these international publications were uh calling him out for the the divisiveness of his policies and then this pandemic has arrived so right. so what's what's happened like how do you see things developing from here how is this resistance that was beginning to swell up against prime minister modi how is that going to collide with the the crisis that's now unfolding as a result of of the pandemic uh so narendra modi globally has been you know his image has been built as a leader who means business but in the last you know ever since uh, the 2019 general elections when modi returned to power with absolute majority i remember time magazine calling him the divider in chief uh the economist called him uh, a man who was polarizing india a man who uh, who was uh you know taking down india the path of majoritarianism and you know india slipping into a majoritarian abyss you had the new yorker of course the new yorker cover uh, blood and soil in narendra modi's india a very very critical evaluation of the modi government i mean a 20 page evaluation by dexter filkins uh, uh you had the guardian write about, and the new york times and the washington post write about mr modi's majoritarian agenda and everybody has except for donald trump uh you know who mr who mr modi claims to be great friends with and you saw when donald trump uh, i mean i'll give you a small, small example i when donald trump came to india in february and i was in ahmedabad where donald trump was hosted uh so there was a stretch of slum uh, 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 where uh, which basically where all the migrants were living mr modi built a wall so so trump could not see the poor of the of, of the state so you know instead of addressing the issues mr modi has indulged in a great deal of grandstanding and uh india's economy has been in distress but each time uh, you know uh, and india's economy impacts the world india's economy uh, impacts its neighboring countries every time mr modi faces a difficult situation he stokes this majoritarian hatred against muslims because unfortunately in a country like india where we have seen um, you know communal divide between hindus and muslims and that's historic that's since the partition of india in 1947 you know when um, pakistan was created and india achieves its independence and there is a resentment that you know if muslims were given a piece of land and this resentment is from the right wing in india uh, a right wing also headed by mr modi's party the bjp uh the resentment is that if muslims were given a piece of land then they should live in india as second class citizens and that resentment is stoked time and again since mr modi came to power and mr modi has been extremely vindictive to the foreign press 
it's been i mean it's been uh, this is his second term in power he has not taken a single press conference since 2014 i mean the world's largest democracy we're talking about the world's largest democracy and the man who heads it is yet to take a single critical question when jeff bezos came to india uh, you know um, mr modi did not meet him and mr modi did not meet him because of the critical coverage by the washington post that spe- that speaks of the vindictive vindictive attitude of the prime minister towards its press just yesterday uh, the indian government has petitioned the supreme court of india to ensure that every news media in india whenever it publishes an article on covid and the corona virus it gets it vetted past the government now it's the is the most draconian measure that i've ever heard of in which democracy are journalists supposed to vet their you know or get their reports vetted past the government that's not how it works that's how authoritarian regimes work mr modi i mean even through this pandemic where india is going to be worst hit he has not taken a single press conference with journalists and trying to assuage uh, the middle class you know to tell them that you know it's going to be all right he refuses to take critical questions uh he refuses to entertain any journalist who writes a critical piece i mean i can speak for myself i remember when i published my sting operation uh on mr modi in 2013 mr modi made sure that i was not given a job by any indian publication so from 2013 to 2018 i wrote only in foreign publications till last year the washington post hired me as its uh, you know global opinions writer Uh, Mr Modi has made life difficult for me in India because I have been extremely critical of of the way he has been stoking majoritarian sentiments and we are where we are because you know Mr Modi has weakened the Indian press so much that some of the most critical stories about India including the pandemic including the corona virus is coming from the foreign press the some of the biggest stories on Kashmir some of the biggest stories on on the anti muslim carnage in new delhi which happened a month ago were being published by the guardian and the washington post the indian press is self censoring itself and this is where prime minister modi has brought india and he's he's not somebody who believes in course correction he mr modi is a vindictive man so every time somebody publishes publishes a critical piece on him uh he ensures that the journalist is not given access to you know any of his ministers or any of his spokespersons um their lives are made miserable they are sacked from their jobs some of our biggest journalists right now are either independent journalists or contributing editors or contributing journalists so in a in a in a in a climate like this how do you expect one to report fairly on the health crisis that we find ourselves in so what the what covid and what this pandemic has done in india is it has exposed the rot that was you know that that had gone so deep in india and 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 hit india at so many levels that it's now all out in the open it's 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 thread bare yeah yeah um what do you think is the fate of these garment workers now the ones that you and i've discussed who you know live in you know the slums in bombay or who've gone back to their villages you know have you got a sense of what's happening with them 
Well, at this point of time, they um, forget working. I mean, I, I was also reading about the, uh, you know, the all these artisans and tailors and, and workers, and especially in the garment industry, both in Bangladesh and in India, both their fates seem to be conjoined because, uh, uh, you know, at this point of time, both the countries are unable to deal with this pandemic. I can speak for India. I mean, in Dharavi and other slums in Bombay where, um, you had these laborers who worked in the garment industry. The industry has shut down completely. Um, and these laborers are, they don't know where to get their next meal from. I remember when I was asking them what, what happens to their work and the, and the response, they just smiled at me. And they says, madam, you still think we are going to work at this point of time? I don't know if, if the meal, if I'm going to get my next meal tonight. And I remember some of the relief workers who were traveling with me when they offered them some money, they said, what are we going to do with this money? This money is going to feed us for about three days. What happens next? So I think at this point of time, all these garment industries and 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 companies and manufacturers, uh, I I do hope they lend this helping hand to their workers who have helped them build their careers and build their these these big fashion houses. It is now the time to extend a helping hand to them. You know, these hands have built some of the finest designs and right now they cannot feed their families and that's the most distressing part that you know we might still flaunt our designer outfit six months later but these people might have lost everything they might have lost their family members so it, it's a, it is a distressing time for them it is an extremely distressing time for them as we talk i don't even know if any of them if help has reached any of them there are volunteers who are working there are volunteers who are reaching out to them with food packets uh, today, I read a report that about 600,000 workers who work in power loom factories in, in Pivandi, which is, again, uh, a place where, you know, there are many garment uh, factories. They are just, just sitting there, and many of them are crying in videos that are now surfacing and asking for help, saying we will die like this in our factories. They are sleeping in factories with no, uh, you know, with no support, with no water, with no food. They have just, I mean... They're just just wearing that one piece of cloth that they have been wearing. They don't have a house to go to. So they're in a very, very distressing state, in Imran. And it's time for the world. It's time for India to turn its attention to these people who have been running our households, who have been running our businesses over the years. And it's time to lend a helping hand to them. Mm -hmm. So if you have one message, Rana, to those people listening in the fashion industry globally uh, who are in you know europe or in in north america or in in the far east in japan or in in other countries where there are big fashion houses like what message do you have for them in terms of how we as an industry can support these workers through this period of you know such despair and difficulty well, these laborers and migrants and workers who have been working in the garment industry are literally the unsung heroes. They have been the unsung heroes of the fashion fraternity. They have they are the ones who 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 do the who do the groundwork. And then you see the designers and the industry shine on the world stage, on the global stage. Now is the time for the industry to to look inwards because these people need their support. Um there's, there's going to be a massive economic recession world over once this ends, once this pandemic ends, there's going to be an economic recession. And the people who are going to be the worst hit are the people, are the laborers and the workers who are working for these garment industries and the leather industries. If 
every if every stakeholder in the fashion industry could could reach out to at least one factory out of you know workers and pledge support to them for a month at least then we could have solved the problem and we could have helped the governments of the day uh you know in finding a solution but the immediate immediate task is to extend a helping hand to extend uh, financial help uh to these people through various organizations through various ngos through various um, volunteers uh who have formed uh who have been working is to reach out to them and help the workers they are they need immediate help and it cannot be more urgent as we talk people are dying of hunger people are dying of starvation it is time for the fashion industry to to really and uh, come forward and help the laborers in india pakistan and bangladesh in in a dire situation like this this is the most distressing situation it is an extraordinary time and it's it calls for extraordinary um, you know reactions and i hope the fashion industry opens its heart to the people of to the people and the underprivileged okay well thank you rana for your time today i'm hugely respectful of the work that you do i'm grateful that you were able to talk to talk to me and and share your first hand observations of what's happening in india i i wish you safety and good health and i i i look forward to meeting you in person one day as a as a big fan of yours and thank you um, so much i look forward to meeting you i mean right now i'm in quarantine because i've been reporting from dharavi the slums for the last and they have found a positive case so now i've quarantined myself for the next 15 days but hope i can see you in better times and uh, inshallah in a better place where we can talk more about india and the fashion industry and journalism i would and love that and the conference yes yeah and i'm really grateful to our mutual friend sonam kapoor for making the introduction so there's a shout out there's a shout out to sonam Um I'm Imran Ahmed founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. That is just the latest special edition of the BF podcast as we talk to leading experts, thinkers, journalists and futurists around the world to make sense of the global pandemic unfolding around us. Please tune in for future episodes of the BF podcast. Share your feedback on social media. Use the hashtag #BFpodcast and share your feedback. Uh, in the reviews on your podcast platform of preference. That's all for this time. See you next time. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles our new iPhone app biannual special print editions and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF education Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.